3: Welcome to the December edition of the History Today podcast. I'm Catherine Hadley, the website editor. In this edition, we talk to Gordon Marsden, a former editor of History Today, about the advertisements that helped fund the first 20 years of the magazine's publication.
1: And just as the advertisements from the 50s and 60s reflect some of the attitudes and um, uh, concerns, um, unconscious or conscious, so the founding of History Today Represents that as well.
3: I also spoke to Greg Carlton from Tufts University in the United States about how the U.S. and Russia dealt with two disastrous military defeats in the Second World War.
2: It's not just a myth about 1941. It's a story that confirms, let's say, the pillar of how they have identified themselves both before 1941 as a kind of uh, through a military lens, and also post 1941.
3: I also interviewed Martin Evans about his latest book, Algeria, France's Undeclared War, published this week by Oxford University Press. The
0: thing in, 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 in Algeria is that on one level, on an official level, history is everywhere. So there's a sense in which the monuments, if you go to Algeria, every town city will have a monument to the martyrs of the Algerian War.
3: First of all, I spoke to Gordon Marsden, a former editor of History Today and the author of a feature article in the December issue of the magazine. I asked him how changes in the adverts published in History Today in the 1950s and the 1960s reflected broader societal changes.
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is, of course, the reason that History Today had this huge bank of advertising was its intimate connection with the Financial Times during the period. Many of these ads that appeared in history today would also have appeared in the Financial Times. So in a way, they slightly reflect uh, the assumptions about the readership of the Financial Times as well as the readership of history today. What I found particularly fascinating and engrossing about them, and obviously I went through the whole 20 years' worth of the magazine, and obviously there were many more just basic adverts for books and all the rest of it. But the point about these adverts is that they are all for products of one sort or another. Sometimes they're for large corporate products, sometimes they're for everyday purchases. And what they do, of course, uh, is try to appeal to people in the the context which advertising was trying to do in the 50s and 60s, in a very new and uh, slightly psychological and sometimes quite aggressive way. And therefore, they seem to me to open a window onto attitudes of the time that um, is an unconscious window, and because it's unconscious, it's more valuable as a historical record. What sort of things come out of it? Uh, I would say um, a, a real sense of um, split views, looking back to England's past, Britain's past, the empire's past, and that comes out very much in the ads of the 1950s, but concerns about the future. Where are we going to go? Lots of stuff in the 1960s about Europe, about the common market. Um, concerns about uh, the nature of business and how you present business, and uh, uh, I've referred in the uh, in the article to the sort of the mad men uh, image of uh, uh, the, the dynamic, young, thrusting, creative businessman. But also concerns about what we call today, I suppose, corporate social responsibility. And finally, of course, some very interesting stuff about the relationship between the sexes and the assumptions about the role of women and the way in which the assumptions about that role of women change over the 20 year periods of depictions of them or references to them in the advertisements. I think from all those points of view, um, to look at a a range of ads in a magazine like History Today over that 20 years period gives you um, a really interesting and intriguing, perhaps slightly different way of looking at the social uh, and cultural uh, sense of the period.
3: And in terms of these adverts changing, then, what were, I mean, you mentioned attitudes to women yeah, was yeah, one big thing yeah. that changed in that 20 year period. Yeah. Um, in what other ways did they change? Constantly? Well, they change,
1: they change, of course, technically, because when you look at some of the early advertisements in the 1950s, certainly by comparison to anything we would see today, they're extraordinarily text heavy. Uh, they, they are full of narrative, uh, even when there's an image there it's uh, very often sort of hemmed in by a very detailed narrative. So the assumption about what readers would be persuaded by in advertisement rather different to the assumptions perhaps certainly we'd have today or even perhaps over the last 20 years. I mean, technically, of course, uh, we're dealing still in the 1950s uh, with a period where engravings, woodcuts, line drawings uh, were still very much Uh, the sorts of things that would appear in posters and things like that, and some very good examples of them in uh, the advertisements of the period. But then as you move into the 1960s, and particularly as you move into the mid-1960s, you see much more use of photography, much more use of colour beginning to come into the magazine, although then, uh, given the production um, uh, techniques at the time, it would still be extremely expensive, and therefore colour tends to be in fact I think from memory is exclusively confined either to the back page or the inside page Uh, and that as I say gives us a different sense to the advertisements they're more about the image more about trying to affect people by the visual having said that of course you can have some extraordinarily powerful images in woodcuts and line drawings and I I talk about a particular one uh, from the 1950s an oil one which is which is an image of uh, the white man and I literally mean the white man prospecting in Africa surrounded by black people sort of you know assisting him. It's it's a it's a very powerful line drawing, but a very powerful line drawing which actually conveys a rather to our sight today a rather disturbing image of the relationship of the colonialist to the person colonised.
3: And how important do you think adverts were as a whole for history today, as a, you know, as a publication?
1: I think they were terribly important uh, uh, as part of uh, the being part of the Financial Times stable. Um, we don't know, and I certainly haven't been able to find out. It may be that um, there is more stuff in David Kinnaston's book about this, the, the relationship between the f- advertising. Uh, income and uh uh, income from sales Uh, in fact there is quite a lot about that um history today it has to be remembered at this period was part of the sales part of the financial times stable i don't think it was at ever any stage expected to be a profitable publication in its own rights and probably if we were able to go back over the finances of that period we wouldn't be able to see history today pulled out as a separate cost center anyway so i'm not sure it's a financial a financial thing, although well, finance obviously was part of it. I think it's. I think it's as much as anything else about the. And this was why um, Brendan Bracken, who founded History Today, and of course was chairman uh, of the Financial Times, was so keen to do it. It's about projecting an image of the Financial Times and and, and the company as being a cultured uh, organization. that is, um, the phrase I think is used uh, one, say, say, ben, uh, that one says that Ben that Bracken regarded. The launch of History Today has his doing something for the arts and for culture. So I think it's enmeshing those two things. But it's certainly the case that it's on the back of uh, the Financial Times uh, that we get the sort of adverts that we do. And there are some extraordinary adverts that you wouldn't otherwise expect to appear in a history magazine. I mean, adverts for um, uh, you know IT equipment or dredging equipment, clearly things that were brought in on the back of the. Booking of advertisements for the Financial Times, and then get sold in and used as a package in History Today as well. And we do know, for instance, that uh, Lord Droyer, who uh, Charles Moore, who was the actual managing director of the Financial Times for much of this period, and who was also a very keen fan and advocate of History Today, um, would personally get on the phone sometimes to people that he knew in the city and get them to book ad space, both in the Financial Times and in history today. It was a very different world in that respect. It was the old boys' network, if you like. Um, uh, And I know that both from what Kinston tells us in his um, history of the Financial Times, and indeed from the oral history that uh, Jackie Guy, who was the uh, art editor of history today for nearly 30 years, um, gave to me and to other people uh, when I worked with her here as editor of History Today in the 1980s and the 1990s, she had been a young picture researcher on the magazine in the 1960s, uh, had known Lord Joyder, Charles Moore, and indeed Peter Cornell, who was the editor from 1951 to 76. So you know she'd heard these discussions of, uh, uh, of you know where they were trying to get advertising from and just general comments about the relationship between the FT and History Today. Uh, and the, the things that she told me at that period also informed uh, the way in which I uh, looked at uh, the relationship with the FT and his, and History Today, apart, as I say, from David Kiniston's, uh definitive um, history of the Financial Times itself.
3: And just lastly, do you think, um, could you just tell us a little bit more about the origins of History Today and where mm. that all came mm. from and um, Know why and how it was founded in
1: 1951. Yes, and I mean um, the history of History Today is a fascinating history in its own right, and and just as the advertisements from the 50s and 60s reflect some of the attitudes and um, uh, concerns, um, unconscious or conscious, so the founding of History Today represents that as well. Uh, I've mentioned Brendan. I've, I've mentioned Brendan Bracken. Brendan Bracken, of course was Winston Churchill's right-hand man in the 30s and 40s. He ended up as the Minister for Information. Uh, And so when Bracken uh, uh, got into uh, a financial journalist at the end of the Second World War, while remaining a Conservative MP, um, the people from Churchill's coterie and Bracken's coterie were also involved. So that um, Alan Hodge, who was the joint editor with uh, um, Peter Quinnell, Uh, and they were both appointed when the magazine was launched in 1951. Alan Hodge uh, had been uh, Brandon Bracken's sort of gopher and researcher uh, during the Second World War and indeed um, collaborated with Churchill when Churchill did his own history of the English-speaking peoples. And the story about the naming of history today is that bracken uh, who decided he wanted to launch this thing in 1951 remember that 1951 was also the year uh, the festival of britain and therefore there was a a great zeitgeist both about looking backwards but also looking forwards around the festival festival of britain although uh, in, intriguingly um, churchill uh, uh, and the opposition as they then were weren't at all keen on the festival of britain and, uh, People may know that actually, when the Conservatives returned to power in 51, um, uh, once the festival was over, they rapidly got rid of many of the sort of modernistic aspects of it. But nevertheless, this was a time when people were looking forward. And Bracken, having decided on the magazine to decide to launch it on the back of history today, um, still uh, so on the back of the Financial Times, still didn't quite know what to call it. And the story goes that he was at a late night sitting in in the Commons and talking to one of his colleagues, I think it was supposed to be the Conservative MP for Seven Oaks and said, you know, "I've got this magazine. I don't know what to call it." And uh, the man in question said, "Why don't you call it History Today?" And that's how the title came. So you have to see History Today, as I say, very much as a product of his time, uh, celebrating, you know, Britain's exceptionalist past as it was then seen. Uh, after all, we're only six years away from the end of the Second World War. Britain standing alone, but the whole issue of 1940. That is reflected, interestingly enough, also in the advertisements, because in some of the early advertisements, testimonial advertisements for everything from motor cars to um, oil lubricants, uh, they do vox pops, as we would call it today, um, with people who were service, ex-service personnel from the Second World War, uh, you know, testifying to the value of this car or that oil lubricant, and their war records are listed in there. So it's very much a product of its time, but obviously a product which had metamorphosed over a 60 year period. But that's why I think that 20 year period is so crucial, and so important. important. After 1970, the direct link in terms of advertising sales with the FT was broken because history today uh, then went into another part of the organisation, Longman. Uh, and from the 1970s onwards, although we still got consumer type adverts, um, uh, they were nowhere near as, as, uh, as, as important or as prominent. Uh, We get a lot of book advertising, which is what you might expect more with a history magazine. But that's why this unique collaboration between the Financial Times and History Today and the advertisements that it produced, I think, are so valuable uh, as a source and a commentary on social history and cultural history in this country over that period.
3: That was Gordon Marsden on advertising in History Today in the 1950s and 60s. Next, we have an interview with Greg Carlton, Associate Professor of Russian Literature at Tufts University in the United States and the author of the second feature article in the December issue of the magazine. He explores how the United States and the Soviet Union dealt with disastrous military defeats in the Second World War and transformed them into positive national narratives. I first of all asked him how these narratives dealt with the enemy.
2: Well, one of the things I, th- I think is important because not having, you know, obviously room in the article um, is, which is very important for Lord's book, which is the, the the primary story about Pearl Harbor, is the imaging of enemy, for example. Right. Um, yeah. He co- I couldn't do justice to Lord's book uh, for space reasons, but it's very important to point out that he actually his oral history extends to the Japanese pilots and navy and um, navy men as well. In other words, that he was interviewing. Um, those who survived the war, obviously, um, and who fought at Pearl. And the story that he creates is not just their foreign oral history of American fortitude and so forth and so on, brought on by the surprise attack, but also how daring, risky, and successful the attack was. And so it's a a kind of back-and-forth tale, as it were. Um, and in fact, I had to, for purposes of American myth, lop off the Japanese side. Um, but you. it's a very respectful and sympathetic portrait of the Japanese soldier, or excuse me, the Japanese um, pilot attacking Pearl Harbor, okay. um, which can be traced to a number of reasons. First of all, they're writing in the mid-1950s, there's a certain chronological distance of the war, and so that the demonization and the racism which marked American representations of the Japanese had obviously faded. And also, too, that Japan was now an ally of the United States. In fact, it was the primary um, staging place a uh, military base for uh, America during the Korean War and so forth and so on. And this feature of the Japanese attack, uh, excuse me, of the Japanese pilots attacking Pearl Harbor as almost an honorable enemy or honorable opponent has carried through um, for example, in a movie of 1970, *Torah, Torah, Torah*, which follows Lord's book with the back and forth between the American sailors, innocent as always, but you know the the Japanese pilots and, and the commanders planning um, this uh, very risky um, and very complicated attack. That is the opposite that one would get, for example, from the Soviet or Russian view of the German soldier. Um, regarding 1941, whether it be at the Fortress of Brest, or Brest in English, um, or anything else dealing with the war. In other words, it is extremely rare, um, even today, to get a sympathetic portrait of a German soldier in a Russian account of the war. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, can be traced to the nature of the two wars. In other words, Japan was never planning to invade the United States or take over the United States and certainly not to exterminate, you know, the population of the United States, whereas for Russia or for Soviet Union, uh, it was an existential war that, in other words, it literally was a war to the death. And for this reason, to this day, you will have this dichotomy in the myth of the, uh, the imaging of enemy, which is very important because any war story has... An enemy, and we can look at a war story from that point of view as well, or war myth from that point of view, as as much from the protagonist or the good guy's uh, point of Mm. view. So I think that would be an important thing uh, to keep in mind. uh, So, how did you want me to address the the challenges?
3: Yeah, um, but just one more question on that. How does that fit in then? I mean, if if Japanese soldiers were actually, you know, not that. well, if they were kind of as sort of humane um, as the Americans, how does that fit in with that myth then? And how does the myth work um, of essentially America being, you know, attacked by a... Well, yeah, yeah I, just, I just wonder how that fits into the myth.
2: Well, what it fits in by not challenging or undercutting what is the core of the myth, and that's how America images itself. In other words, we have an unusual imaging of the enemy that is through a, I don't want to say sympathetic light, but through an an ennobling one, let's put it that way. But because even that kind of enemy will not threaten this core myth of, of the American innocent victim of the surprise attack, the same way that one could have... Where, and as I suggested, it's coming from you know, the, the, the canon of the, the, the Western pioneer tale. Um, one could have a Western tale of the surprise Indian or Native American attack, which doesn't necessarily put the Indian or the Native American in a kind of demonic light. Um, And that was already available for the myth canon, as it were, because this is a story which is central to the American identity. Um, It goes back to the American Revolution, that, in other words, what we see uh, from the American perspective, the American Revolution is, in effect, uh, an innocent well, Proto-America, that is obviously a, c- a colony, attacked by the evil outsider, you know, the, the British as it were. This plays out in Lexington and Concord, for example, and, uh, which is actually not too far from out my, my window, um, but also could go back even into, for example, the 17th century when um, the English colonists are first arriving, the Puritans, um, and the idea of them as this innocent community threatened by the outside, um, so that the American myth can handle... A, a demonized enemy or an ennobled enemy, as long as because it because it doesn't undercut this core story that we have going on and on and on, and once again repeated, uh, for example, with nine eleven, mm-hmm. that you know, American innocent. This time, of course, Al okay, Qaeda is demonized, <laughs> but there's a certain variable or a certain range or spectrum that of, of how the enemy might be imaged within this American war story.
3: Mm-hmm. So then. Um I mean one of one of the other things is that um actually the legacy um of both Pearl Harbor and um the breast fortress, I mean there are um elements of controversy in this um legacy. For example, the fact that um you know was actually the Pearl Harbor was the attack kind of engineered and slightly encouraged by the Americans. And so with all these controversies, I'm sort of surprised that these two myths um, haven't been challenged and have never been revived since the, you know, for the past um, 50 years, since the 50s when they were kind of constructed. I mean-
2: oh, Well, they certainly, um, thing, they certainly have been challenged. But a key thing, that they certainly have been challenged. But the key thing is that challenges to these myths, whether it be on the Soviet-Russian side or on the American side, they tend to come from historians. Um, and what do I mean by that? That in other words, one could actually spend a career studying the debates surrounding 1941 on both sides as it's been debated back and forth through, uh, excuse me, among historians through the decades. Um, how much did Roosevelt know or the American command know and so forth and so on? Did they bait the Japanese into attacking or were they truly surprised, so forth and so on? That can be played out on the Soviet side as well. What did Stalin know? Was he planning to attack the Germans? Was it a preemptive attack and so forth and so on? But what is key is that those, those debates and those challenges to the myth, which are very solid, um, tend to remain in the domain of a kind of academic argument. Mm-hmm. And if we think one of the key things about myth, a primary engine of misproduction and myth preservation, um, is popular culture, cinema, popular history, n- literature, and so forth and so on. That those, those media or those genres Um, tend to avoid debate, controversy, and complexity. In other words, it would be very difficult to take the historian's debate around Pearl or around Brest Fortress and transfer it onto screen. It wouldn't, frankly, make a good story, Mm. which is a key point, I think, when we think about the the power of myth, um, so that no, one could actually and, and has been done um, periodically. Every couple of years in the United States, you'll have another another historian producing a book saying, you know, this perhaps is what the United States was doing, and so forth and so on. You know, painting Roosevelt as a duke, painting Roosevelt as a, as a manipulator, painting Roosevelt as this or that, or the American command, and so forth and so on. The same thing we have going on in Russia today. You know, was Stalin planning to attack Hitler? Was it truly a surprise attack? So forth and so on. Um, but again, those tend to stay at... The that in that area, let's say, of, of the, the public the public conversation and it's a conversation that your average person does not participate in or partake in because they're not gonna necessarily read a heavy academic tome, you know, with deciphered and translated documents and so forth and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, Myth tends to be resistant to the the complexities of history, which is why, in a way, it tends to stay solid or, in a sense, unchallenged within myth. This doesn't mean, however, that you can't get in popular culture challenges the myth. An obvious example would be, for example, the Vietnam War for the American experience or for the Soviet-Russian experience, the, the the Afghan War in the 1980s, that, in other words, that the core Canon of American movies about Vietnam painted for the disaster and the horror that it was, um, similar in Russia as well. But that's because the war itself, the, the, the reality of those two wars, were themselves challenges to the myth of an innocent country and, you know, always to victory. And of course, what you have is a country revealed to, to be criminal and um, also suffering a military defeat. Um, but the, the nature of the genre, the medium, or however we want to classify myth, this, this realm of public understanding of an event, um, tends to shy away from controversy. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm not, I don't know if there's... um, Yeah, I mean, just, I don't know, one one, um, one maybe final question is, I mean, if this um, myth kind of, it is still still prevails today. I mean, do you, do you think there's any way that it would ever...
2: It, it, would, it, would, it would dissipate or whatever yeah, the word sorry, is? Yeah,
3: sorry, yeah, I mean, is the, do you think, yeah, it will, it, it, do you think, but yeah. The
2: problem, I, I would say this, one of the things about this myth is what it does for both audiences, that is a Russian audience and an American audience, it confirms a scent a scent it's not just it's not just a myth about uh, 1941 it's a story that confirms let's say the pillar of how they have identified themselves both before 1941 as a kind of uh, through a military lens and also post 1941 so in other words to challenge the, the, it, what, what matters. I guess it depends on what one's talking about. Is one talking about the myth of innocent victim attacked by outside evil, or is one talking specifically about 1941? If one's talking about the myth that the macro you know, the master narrative level, then in effect you would have to have a revolution um, or an iconoclastic revolution in, let's say, a Russian or an American collective sense of identity Mm -hmm. that would obliterate the myths surrounding world, uh, surrounding, excuse me, the Revolutionary War, surrounding uh, 9-11 for that matter, surrounding, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. other key moments in American history. One thing that myth does is it tends to repeat itself. That while all historical events are unique in and of themselves, just like wars and battles. Myth tends to streamline them. They tend to sound similar, which is why President Bush, for example, makes or made 9/11 sound like a new Pearl Harbor, um, and Pearl Harbor itself sounded like a Western tale, and Western tales themselves sounded like an American Revolution kind of tale. Um, so, therefore, this is but one uh, one piece of a larger. Myth engine, as it were, uh, but a core piece now. It's become the centerpiece, certainly for the United States, um, less so perhaps for Russia. Now, in terms of challenging the myth of the actual battle, um, again, that could be done, uh, but one would have to think. You know, again, if we're saying this is going to be something that, that a, a, a movie maker's is going to do, again, if myth is primarily in the realm of popular culture, it would be difficult, I think, if one to. to to gather support for making a a movie like this um, that would strike at the core of American identity. One can do that if, however, one's in Vietnam. One can do that for Russia if one is in Afghanistan, but not in what literally has become sacred ground. Um, In fact, it literally is sacred ground, um, the Breast Fortress, um, because of the way the church has been reopened, and this is a very common thing that uh, Russian will do. They they will will memorialize a battle, for example, the Battle of Bardino against Napoleon um, has a monastery on it, and so that you have a kind of sacralization process. In America, a similar thing happens, though, in a more secular line. For example, the battlefield of Gettysburg, which is now, you know, is well, as Lincoln called it, hallowed ground, in, an, in a noble field of death where both sides are brothers and so forth and so on. Um, and the same thing, of course, at Pearl Harbor. Um, so that's, it's, it's an intriguing question. I would, it, 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 I would never say that these myths will last forever. Um, certainly they won't. However, they tap into such a deeply embedded sense of how each nation sees itself that that very sense would have to begin to crumble or be threatened, I think, for these myths to go as mm-hmm. well.
3: That was Greg Carlton speaking about the military defeats at Pearl Harbour and the Brest Fortress. Finally, we spoke to Martin Evans from Portsmouth University about his latest book on the Algerian War of Independence, published by Oxford University Press. OUP is the oldest university press in Britain, founded in the 15th century, yet it's the first time ever that it's published a book on Algeria. I asked Martin why this was the case and also how both countries have dealt with the legacy of this very difficult and controversial conflict.
0: Well, I suppose I think the thing is, is that for a British or an Anglo-Saxon audience, Algeria is not an obvious subject. I think that's in that sense, it's very, very different to France, where Algeria, the aftermath of the Algerian war has a huge impact upon the population in France. The population of France is about 60 million there's about seventeen million, whether it be European settlers who left Algeria, Algerian immigrants or Algerian or French citizens of Algerian, Algerian descent, they are directly touched by the Algerian war in one way or another. So I think the comparison in the British or Anglo Saxon context, or certainly the British context, would be let's say Ireland, where Ireland is is a very obvious history for for Britain in the same way. I think the history of Pakistan or the history of South Africa, they are places where the connections are very, very obvious. I think for Britain, the connections with Algeria are not obvious. And I think for that reason, I think that explains why why Oxford University Press, this is their first book on Algeria.
3: Mm. Um, Another question is, so the title is An Undeclared War. Can you explain why the war was undeclared?
0: Well, Algeria is invaded by France in 1830, and then it's annexed subsequently as an integral part of France. It's a sovereign part of France, sovereign French territory. When you have the, the, the Algerian rebellion or the Algerian uprising in 1954, the French immediately see or underline that this is an internal problem because this is French sovereign territory. So in that sense, there's never any formal declaration of hostilities. Um, and that was really true all the way through the 19th century when you had periodic uprisings in Algeria. These were repressed by the French, but it was always presented as an internal problem. So in terms of international law, the French always presented it as, as their particular problem. This is why the United Nations had no remit. It couldn't couldn't interfere. Um, that was seen to be contrary to the United Nations taught charter. The paradox, of course, is that it does actually end with a formal cessation of hostilities in March 1962. So although the war was undeclared, it did formally end with negotiations in 1962.
3: Mm. But to what extent did it formally end, though? Because I think a big aspect of your book is looking at the legacy of the war, which is obviously hugely complex, not just in France, but in Algeria. Um the fact that France never even recognised it as a war until ninety-nine. Um yeah, so to what extent did it really end then in sixty-two, in and maybe can you tell us a little bit about that difficult legacy?
0: Yeah, I think I think I mean in my opinion, Algeria is a kind of like seminal event in the mid twentieth century history. Um for France Algeria was an integral part of the sovereign territory. So so releasing Algeria was a huge trauma. Uh, De Gaulle tried to bury this trauma in 1962 by immediately turning away from Algeria. So if we look at France after 1962 in terms of foreign policy, it's anything but Algeria. So so France looks towards Europe. Uh, De Gaulle adopts a kind of like aggressive foreign policy on the international stage, challenging both the Soviet Union... And the united states and part of this is really trying to forget the trauma of, of, of algeria and to actually present out the, the 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 kind of um decolonization is a positive thing for france in terms of allowing france to marry the 20th century now the problem with that is that things that you repress do come back and uh, there is a way in which the um the legacy of the Algerian war is very, very obvious in, in, in contemporary France in terms of, I think, the legacy of, of, of racism and anti-Algerian prejudice is intimately connected to the experience of, 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 of colonialism. Similarly, if we look at the whole whole phenomenon of the rise of the National Front during the 1980s, um, the way in which that uh, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, himself an ex-paratrooper during uh, the Algerian war, he ap- appealed to... Um, a European vote. So those settlers who left in inverted commas Algeria after 1962, there was a real correlation between support for the National Front and and the Pied Noir and the Pied Noir vote. So Algeria continues to cast a long shadow in 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 in, in French society and politics. Um, similarly, over three million Frenchmen fought in in Algeria. Um, And that left a very, very difficult psychological legacy for many of those people who felt that they were traumatized by the war. And then politicians' careers continued, like François Mitterrand, but they were left with the the psychological damage. Mm. So the legacy is very, very obvious in in France, equally so in Algeria, that that for Algeria the War of Liberation or the War of One Million Martyrs became the cornerstone of post-independence Algeria. But what you see in the 1980s is a real generational tension where a new generation emerges who have no direct experience of French colonialism. And for them, they immediately begin to see this narrative of one million martyrs as, as something that is to be suspicious of or is to be, they see it as spurious. Because for them, they see it a way of legitimizing a regime which they see as increasingly corrupt and increasingly disconnected from for the, for, for the, for their lives. I think on the international stage, Algeria had, had had a very, very big legacy. Algeria, in a way, in the 1960s and 1970s, it was seen to be a an heroic narrative, which many people who supported causes in Africa and Asia, Algeria was seen to be a heroic war, immortalised in the Gillo Ponte Corvo 1966 film, The Battle of Algiers. Mm-hmm. But in a, way Algeria, in a way, Algeria then became, in the 1980s and above all in the 1990s, when you had intense violence in Algeria between armed Islamist groups and the Algerian government, it was then from a kind of a heroic model to a model of failure, where Africa had gone wrong. So I think Algeria it has a very complex legacy on a, on a number of different levels, in France, Algeria, and on the international stage as well.
3: And how do you think that um, Algeria has dealt then with its history of um, the Algerian War, and how, um, yeah, how it, how is, how is, do they see history as maybe different than to to France, and even just the role of history as a whole?
0: Well history is, is the I think the interesting thing in, 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 in Algeria is that on one level, on an official level, history is everywhere. So there's a sense in which the monuments, if you go to Algeria, every town city will have a monument to the martyrs of the Algerian war. So it's a way in which it is a history on one level which is which is present. Um it is also present in, 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 in daily lives and in political discourse. I mean, part of the issue at the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, was the rise of a political Islamist movement which talked about the betrayal of the values of the original Algerian revolution, the idea that the Algerian revolution had been infiltrated by pro-French forces that had imposed a Francophone culture on an Arabophone, uh, uh, Arabophone elite. So there's a way in which history, making sense of the Algerian War of Liberation, it is everywhere within Algerian society. Everybody's got an opinion on the Algerian War of Liberation. Um, is it a spurious narrative? Is it something that they subscribe to? And In that sense, I think history has a very real presence within Algerian society. But in a sense, that's not critical history. It's not professional or academic history. And that's one of the things that I certainly tried to do in this book was, for want of a better word, try to look at the Algerian Revolution in, a, in a, an objective manner and to understand the processes at work.
3: Mm. And do you think that that's, um, well, I, I think it's probably easier for you to do that as a British historian um, in, in terms of even just going to France or Algeria, interviewing people.
0: Um. I certainly think that that's an advantage. You are seen by both Algerians and French people, interestingly enough, as somehow being more neutral and more objective. Whether that's true in reality is, is another. Is another. Is another uh, I think is another. Is another question. Um, I was very, very struck at the end of the nineteen eighties. There was an attempt in France to really open up the Algerian war as a terrain for serious academic research. But what was interesting at the time was all of the historians that were very prominent. So, Benjamin Stora, born in Algeria, Jewish Algerian background, Mohamed Habi, who had been an Algerian nationalist in the FLN. All of these people that were writing the history of Algeria were themselves participants in that history. And that was really an intriguing issue that, in a sense, somebody like Habi had a privileged insight into the inside workings of. The Algerian liberation struggle during the 1950s, which was unique and allowed him to kind of like come to certain conclusions. on the other hand, you couldn 't say that was something that was necessarily objective. And I think that one of the things that 's interesting during the 1990s since the 1990s is the emergence of a new generation of historians, people like Malika Rajal in Algeria, Sylvie Teno in France Raphael Branche, who in a sense because they 're born after the Algerian War. Are perhaps less directly implicated and they've certainly tried to be more objective or well, certainly I think I don't think any history can be objective but certainly they've asked difficult and searching questions in a way which is perhaps easier than than, than earlier generations mm. and certainly the history that I've tried to write in this book I would certainly try to fit it into that, uh, uh, into, that uh, into that mode in a sense within this book there has been no No question that has been taboo. It has also tried to overcome both amnesia within France, but also, if you like, hagiography and myth-making within Algeria itself to ask difficult questions about, about history.
3: That was Martin Evans talking about his latest book, Algeria, France's Undeclared War. Thank you for listening to this month's podcast. You can read Gordon Marsden and Greg Carlton's articles in the December issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. You can also listen to previous podcasts by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast.